Thanks for choosing a 3CR podcast. Throughout June 2021, we're running our annual Radiothon when we ask you, the listener, to make a donation so that we can continue to make great radio. Your donation will help keep us community-owned and community-controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. And with that done, please enjoy your podcast. Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Join your hosts Anne and Kevin the second Friday of every month on The Sewer Show between 5.30 and 6.30pm here on 3CR Community Radio. This is a show where we explore macroeconomic solutions for the unemployed and underemployed. Everyone in our community has value. Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back on this Friday, the 25th of June, 2021. How are you, Anne? Hi, Kevin. How are you? Wow. Halfway through the year already. More than halfway. Well into, well into winter. Hey, so um, look, what, what have we got on the show for this weekend? The time has come, Kevin, to reveal our mystery celebrity guest. Ooh. Mm, I know. <laughs> so we have the pleasure of speaking with an economist comedian. It is the one and only Luke McGregor. Excellent. We like Luke. He um he does what we like, what we're trying to do, which is explain uh, complex economics uh, quite well. Yeah. So he's a great communicator and a great ambassador for modern monetary theory. Uh, anyone else? We have Ricardo Welters. You know, also in the news at the moment, of course, the government is loving on the unemployed, as it does with a bit of a rewrite of the social security legislation that looks at unemployment benefits. And they're really digging their heels in on mutual obligations. So it was really great to speak with academic Ricardo Welters, who has looked into whether or not mutual obligations actually work to help people find jobs. Fantastic. Um, who shall we kick off with? Let's start with Luke. <laughs> This week, we are very excited to have our celebrity guest on the show, and it might be a name that you've come across if you think that economics has comedic value. <laughs> I'm very pleased to welcome to the show actor and writer on The Rosehaven Show, comedian and economics graduate, Luke McGregor. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Huge celebrity, triple A-lister. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, we have we have to do a mandatory 12-week course before we're allowed to uh, get the celebrity licence. So. Is, is that on the wall behind you there? The, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, Luke, I was reading your bio and I did see the word Centrelink linked with your name. Oh, yeah, I used to work at Centrelink. Um, yeah, I, I used to like it because there was a lot of spreadsheets involved. I was not... Um, <laughs> I was not customer uh, facing, so I was um, I was be I was behind the scenes. I never had to tell someone no over, uh, <laughs> you know, look them in the face over a counter. So I was uh, I was I, I had the I had Centrelink light. Um, okay, you came to fame amongst the modern monetary theory community. That's the school of economic thought that Kevin and I like to use to try and figure out what's going on in the world. And you came to fame in the MMT community. I think it was really first with a Lukeonomics episode that you did on the weekly with Charlie Pickering. Oh, yeah. That was back in July uh, 2020. Um, credit to uh, Bill Mitchell for helping me uh, write that. So, so you can't take credit on. Oh, that. I mean, I'll take, I'll take, I'll take most of the credit too, because he's not here. But um, I, I was, I was emailing him a lot just to double check that what I'm saying is not um, insane, because uh, it was that was kind of my first 
foray into it was uh, I think the sketch was originally supposed to be just about fiscal policy, but the more I dug deep into it, the more I realised that oh, okay. none of this really makes sense to me. Even it never really made sense at uni that we could have a you know an unli- unlimited access to our currency, but not but also have debts to pay in that currency. I, I just I didn't understand how that how we could mm-hmm. default on that debt if we could make unlimited Australian dollars. Um, and then MMT sort of. Um, you know, sort of, it was like a last piece of the puzzle fitting in. So um, the sketch sort of became more about um, more MMT focused and less about um, just because I found that was a, the that was an understanding of fiscal policy that made sense to me. So you were already pondering this, and I was going to ask you because I did notice that you had a bachelor of economics, which I assume would have been the mainstream education and. You know, not everyone can break out of that mindset. Uh, it was uh, around uni when I was uh, that we were talking about um, monetary policy, and um, you know, just that you know, the more money you print, uh, the more it goes down in value, or the more you encourage inflation. And I, I just couldn't, like, it didn't. It never made sense to me, just because you can print all the money in the world, but if you dump it in the ocean, um, it doesn't <laughs> cause inflation, obviously. So it's not printing money in it of itself doesn't cause inflation. Mm. And then I thought, uh, and if I was a, you know, if a genie just gave me $100 and said spend it however you want, that wouldn't cause inflationary pressure because the, the economy could just absorb that. If I if I went out and bought a PlayStation game with it, there's not gonna, they're not gonna, I'm not going to increase the price of PlayStation games. So I'm like, okay, so that means theoretically there must be an amount of money we can... Um, inject into the economy that has no inflationary effect um, uh, unless, you know, until the point where supply starts being overwhelmed. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I think what I've heard from the MMT community is that, you know, a deficit to the government is a surplus to the citizens. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if I if I had unlimited access to Australian dollars, I wouldn't be worried about paying off my mortgage. Right, right. You know, I'd be worried that that money has value. It, it, I don't know, it was just it, everything made sense once I sort of looked at it through the MMT lens. But um, and up until then, I was just sort of spewing talk points, which I get um, spammed to me now, which was just like, oh, but if you print money, it causes inflation, or mm-hmm. you know, you'll have uh, you'll have loaves of bread will cost seventy thousand dollars each or something. It's um, so that has come out of your mouth at some point. If you print money, you'll cause inflation. Yeah, <laughs> m- mostly because I was just trying to do well on the exams. Um, I didn't really understand why. I just knew that um, that's what the lecturer told me. So I would, um, you know, I'd sort of regur- I'd, re- I'd regurgitate it. We've heard this from the very beginning. One of the first shows we did was with a uh, an economics student who who told us that the course was in a large degree just just rubbish that things didn't make sense so it's quite interesting to hear that um that you've done uh you know an orthodox economics course and you're asking questions about what you're learning as you're learning it and not getting the answers from the course you have to go elsewhere to get those answers yeah. i was trying to do well but i i didn't um I wasn't in a mindset of questioning what I was learning. I, I was just trying to absorb it. Um, That's we've heard that time and time again. That that the the role of an economic student is to is to be good at maths and don't question what you're learning. Yeah, it was a it was a strange. Um, it, and it really wasn't until the weekly that I started working for the weekly that I started to. And then hearing you know with COVID all this talk about debt and future generations will have to pay it back and mm-hmm. that sort of little thing in my brain that was um bugging me at the time when I was at uni started to pop up again and the more I looked into it the more um MMT made sense to me. Yeah. 
It really coalesced nicely in that little clip and people can go online and look at it. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes where you can look at Lukeonomics talking about MMT. Thank you. It's it's the uh, it's the it's the it's the Breaking Bad of, of MMT sketches. It's, uh, it's really <laughs> a really a, a masterwork. How did you get into um, into contact with Bill Mitchell? Uh, I just as I was researching MMT, I sort of um, discovered that uh, one of the founders. Um, yes. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. I just found out that he's in Australia, and I'm like, oh god, maybe I can get a hold of him. But, you know, Bill really should be all over the news um, all the time. Exactly. And and also, I read a lot of MMT articles where I felt like the person writing them didn't quite... They, they wrote them saying what the what the premise was, but then they'd list things like, um, but, you know, printing money causes runaway inflation but without sort of having someone from MMT answer that point. Mm. And that was frustrating to me because I'm like, well, it's not like anyone who's thought of MMT before hasn't thought about inflationary pressure. <laughs> it's not like that's a gotcha. It's like, oh, what, inflation? Oh, my God. I had never thought of that. Dang, didn't think of that and one. And so I really wanted my piece to be, um, you know, to answer those issues. And so I, I focused as much as I could on explaining it as quickly as possible and then just getting on to the what were the common arguments against it, and that's where I sort of got Bill to help me uh, make sure I was sort of making sure that I felt like I was I was answering the criticisms at the same time I was sort of explaining what it was. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. If I could ask you to cast your mind back to May the 20th earlier this year. Yeah, yeah where you appeared as a panellist on an episode of ABC's Quanda Q&A. Yep, yep, yep. And, in fact, the ABC is billing that one as Barnaby Meets Lukeonomics. And <laughs> there was a couple of minutes in that show that uh, MMT has found quite riveting. <laughs> and one of the things that surprised me the most was that they all seemed unsurprised themselves as to where you were headed. When you said, everyone knows Australia can create currency. They were kind of all either nodding or rolling their eyes. And I was just wondering if you were actually discussing MMT in the green room ahead of that show. Oh, I, I, I wasn't, no. I, um, I, I, I didn't even think I was going to bring it up until they started talking about debt okay. on the show. Um, I was more concerned with um, the – I was very against the um, gas power plant. Um, and so that was sort of my main focus was just sort of talking about the independent research done on that. Um so MMT sort of come up just because I, I they started talking about debt and, you know, Liberal and the Labor Party both tend to use that against each other when it suits them. Sort of, you know, you're blowing out the deficit, you're blowing out the deficit. Um, well, you're blowing it out more than we did. Um, and so I was, um, <laughs> I just wanted to add another voice in there that was... Um, Rational? You know, there, there's another way of thinking about this. Um, and... Uh, uh, Gabrielle was a legend. We, we chatted in the green room afterwards and um, we... We've been meaning to catch up for coffee, but um, the lockdown in Melbourne sort of stopped that. Um, it was it was it was really interesting talking to her about it, who's sort of come from the same school I did, but had sort of stayed in the world. Mm. Um, Gabriella de Souza, who is a senior economist with CEDA, which is the Committee for Economic Development of Australia. Yeah, and uh, so she was very open to, to 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 hearing to hearing me out and to um you know it was a really really good conversation and um. 
yeah, we're trying to catch up again. Good, that's uh, get out there, Luke. But it's just been tricky to organise with the pandemic. <laughs> well, it's great to hear like the epilogue on that moment because, of course, as an MMT here, I was sitting there and I thought your interaction with her was the most interesting part because I had her pegged then as a mainstream economist. And I just watched her walk through some of the usual objections to MMT and I just was left with the feeling that, oh, no, the the rotten economics is getting too much of a hearing here. (laughs) I think it's just, um, you know, it took me a long time to come around and um, it's... You know, she thinks of not MMT like I think of MMT. You know, you both think the other ones just needs a bit more information and they'll come around. So it's, um, mm-hmm. you know, and I think, I think that's the beauty of um, the academic debate. Whereas um, Bar- someone like Barnaby tends to shut sort of conversation down a little. Um, a little. <laughs> Barnaby Joyce, who is, of course, with the Nationals Party. But uh, he, he, that, was an inter- that was another interesting thing, though, was Barnaby was quite lovely afterwards. We, we had a drink afterwards and... Um, yeah. It was almost like it was like a. It reminded me of like on you know in WWE when these two wrestlers you know will have some sort of cage <laughs> yeah. match and then they'll be hugging in agreement afterwards saying great work. Um, so it was it was a strange. It, I think he's so used to arguing with people that uh, at the end there was no malice at all. It was um, so in the end we all had drinks and it was quite it was quite fun. But um, it was it was basically performing for the camera. He was. I think there is a. I mean, I guess I am too. It's but it's um it, like everyone was lovely afterwards. We all sat around in a circle and just sort of had drinks. It was um but but yeah, Gabrielle was interesting because she, I. I could hear her saying to me all the things that I thought originally. So, mm. um, but 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 you know, like she was very open to hear me so out. So, in that uh, little clip, you were wondering about how on earth the Reserve Bank could buy back the bonds for the Australian government. Where on earth were they getting the money? You know, I knew that it was the Reserve Bank. Um, you know, buying these government bonds with money that it's issued to itself. Um, and so, my question to the Reserve Bank at the time was how. Like you're the government's bank, and you've issued yourself money to buy these bonds. So why does the government have to refund you that money? And if it does, where does that money go? And the answer I got from the Economist was that um, behaviour. And I, I, I feel I always feel a little bit bad talking without him on the phone as well to sort of justify his position. But, uh, but it was, it was, um, he was talking about how, you know, there was a, there was behavioral, there needs to be a behavioral constraint on government spending. Mm. Um, otherwise there's nothing stopping politicians, you know, spending as much as they want. Um, but I feel like that's already happening right now. Um, but it's just, you know, we've got this sort of artificial, it's almost like we're using debt and these secondary markets and, everything to sort of as a way of sort of, I don't know, mm-hmm. putting the reins on politicians as opposed to any real actual constraint. This um, bond buying and selling business, basically I think what it's camouflaging is the idea that the government can't be become insolvent. It can never run out of Australian dollars. And, of course, we're talking about the federal government, not state governments, which are more like us in the way they have to earn or borrow to spend. Exactly, and they they already have that power now. It's not like it's something we're going to give to them, or something that they'll have once they embrace MMT. They've already got it. It's just they. It's just you know. It's just a bit more convoluted in the way they justify it. Because <laughs> my my questions are about MMT, and not that it's the. It's not how the system works. Like I believe it is how the system works. My questions are then okay. So if it is how the system works, and politicians embrace it, what's 
what's politics look like then? Because then, you you know, all of a sudden, like for aged care was a, the example to me was that was a big one mm-hmm. this year was, uh, you know, the Royal Commission and the Royal Commission's, you know, uh, recommended um, this many billion dollars and the government underfunded. Um, they didn't match that. But, and I'm assuming that, you know, part of the reason was because they wouldn't blow up the deficit anymore. But, you know, if, you're, if, if you've got a politician in power that says uh, that they believe MMT, what's that look like? What are they, how does they, what's their spending look like? And, um, like, even if, say, uh, and this is, I, I don't, th- I don't, I have no proof that this is the case, but I did wonder if, like, you're, say, in the opposition party, mm-hmm. you wouldn't want MMT to be embraced by the community until you're in power. <laughs> because if... They have a bit of an advantage. Mm. Yeah, if if the uh, if the current party in power, if MMT was embraced by the sort of wider audience, um, you know that sort of does free up their um, coffers a bit. Um, say, for example, Labor are on board with MMT; they want to wait until they're um, elected before they start really pushing it as a narrative. It's kind of interesting that we've just had an episode with a conservative government with the whole COVID pandemic, uh, who then brought in job seeker and job keeper. Uh, and this explains a lot of MMT understanding of the economy. The government was able to produce hundreds of billions of dollars of income and inject it into the economy to save it without borrowing and without taxing because that all happens afterwards as some sort of a bookkeeping exercise. Um, now, if that had been done by a Labor government, as they did during the GFC under Rudd a while ago, and it was to a much lesser degree, mm. then the Conservative government starts screaming blue murder, saying that things are out of control, this is all crazy. But if a Conservative government does exactly the same thing, and to a much larger extent, well, apparently that's okay. Yeah, they, they both use debt as a sort of as a weapon to wield. And it's um, it's really it's really easy for people to understand, I think, is that you spend money, you have to pay it back. It's a it's such a simple principle and it's like we almost ignore the fact that we can print money um and you know it's not even print money anymore it's just changing numbers on a screen so it's um it's 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 like that just gets forgotten in these debates and you know it's like the government becomes like this um you know household right you know, has a has the same concerns as household spending and is racking up the credit card debt, but it's just, it's just not. I mean, how could you have a credit card debt and also the ability to issue yourself as many dollars as you want? It's really um, interesting that conjecturing about how the politicians might behave once they they would understand that there's no limit on the spending capacity, but of course there is a limit on how much you would want to spend in reality. Um, it would become more about you know monitoring the the real. Um, constraints on spending which are you know our productive capacity our you know inflation and that sort of thing like so you'd be monitoring those levels you know having your fiscal policy make sure you don't overheat the economy which is uh, which in my mind is actually safer than what we're doing now because if we're not um, looking at that specifically to measure how much we need to spend into the economy then we're sort of you know because you could you could still have a, a government now that has a a deficit that could cause inflation um Without embracing MMT, but if you, at least if you if they embrace MMT, then all of a sudden they are carefully monitoring the the real constraints on spending, you know, which are those pressures. You know, you're speaking to Barnaby Joyce and these people. Uh, I'm always curious as to how much politicians know about how the economy actually works, um, because I get the impression that some of them know quite a bit and others haven't got a clue. So, what do you reckon about Barnaby? Has he got his head around? The economy, when he's shutting you down, is he shutting you down because he knows what you're going to say or is it because he doesn't I, know? I don't know, I guess. I guess with a 
policy like um, coal, for example, like he, he said uh, he wants another coal power plant, you know, that, that means he either truly believes that it's a good idea or, or knows it's a bad idea, but knows that it benefits people who are, who benefit him. So it's, um, it's tricky. It's, it, I don't know. There's just, I, I don't, I really honestly don't know. I, I just, it, it just feels, the only thing that frustrates me about politics, well, there's many things that frustrate me about politics, but there's a, um, and we, we got into it very briefly at the end. It's just that there's, um, it's, it seems to be very driven by political donations. Um, you've got these large companies that are currently, currently have money that are spending a lot of money to get politicians on side. And I don't know how that's beneficial for your average citizen or change. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and politicians are to a certain extent, uh, you know, they're tied to that system because if they don't accept the donations, the other party will, and they can outspend them on an ad campaign. So it's um, I, I don't know. I I don't think I, I do think I, I hope that to politicians like Barnaby are at least thinking that they're helping someone. Um, I feel like that's one of the ongoing sort of ponderings. Do people really not see how the economy works or have they bought into the ideology? So it's one of those conundrums. <laughs> I, I think it's both. And, you know, there's things like rating agencies that say, uh, what, what is it, they have, countries have like AAA ratings and AA ratings and things like that. Like, oh, they, yes. uh, you know, if people adopted MMT, then they don't need to exist anymore. Um, those, tri- those rating agencies are basically turn out to be um, uh, like a marketing tool it's, and they can be bought exactly. and sold. So there's a there's a lot of um, there's a lot of people in power right now who benefit from the way it is. It is it is um, it is frustrating when when we're watching a political debate. We're watching not only are they like I'd much rather watch a debate where this it's not spending they're debating it's how they spend. But the fact that they're also debating about how much to spend is frustrating. And a big thank you to all our listeners who supported our show during 3CR's June Radiothon. You know, all those dollars go to keeping 3CR going for another year. Your dollars are like votes to keep this show on the air, and it's a great morale boost for Kevin and myself. And it's not too late. You can still jump online, go to the website 3cr.org.au, just click the support or donate button. And don't forget to mention Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Now, if we, if we were Barnaby Joyce, we'd, we'd shut this conversation. We would shut this conversation down about uh, fifteen minutes ago. I, I, I seemed I, <laughs> it was it was just when you were getting to that point of inflation. You were talking about um, uh, the constraint is inflation, not debt, and I, that's how I was reading the conversation. And it was at that point that Barnaby jumped in and said, "Oh, come on, we don't want to bore the ABC listeners any more than than they were trying to improve the ratings of this show and, and, not, and not bore them to tears with economics." But it was a very important point. Yeah, it's um, it's that. Uh... It's, it just keeps coming up as a gotcha, um, on comments and things. It's just like, oh, what about inflation? Um, and it's like, well, yeah, that's, that's, that's the whole premise of this is that inflation is your, is your pressure. Is that's how you, that you, that's what you've got to be careful of. So, um, yeah, I, I always try and mention it when I'm talking about MMT just because, um, I feel like people sort of yell it out as like some sort of, Shut down, yeah. as opposed to a fundamental principle within MMT. Yeah, they've actually got it exactly the wrong way around. Speaking of a gotcha moment, I found one online. Uh, there was a reaction to that Q and A show that you were part of, and it came in the form of 
a piece written by Jared Henderson, who is the executive director of the Sydney Institute. Right. And this piece was actually uh, republished in The Australian, but that's behind a paywall. So I had to go and get it off his blog. Oh, uh, yeah, I couldn't read it because I, uh, I, I, yeah, I hit the paywall, so I never ended up getting to read it. <sighs> I don't know if it's the same version, but I found a version of it. And so his piece was titled, When the ABC's Q&A is So Bad, It's Actually Quite Good. I'll take it. It's a compliment. <laughs> it's a bit of a backhanded compliment, isn't it? <laughs> there are a few zingers in here, so I'm sorry to do this to you. Oh, it's fine. I've, I've had, uh, I'm sure I've had much worse um, as a comedian. It's really fine. We will give you an opportunity to respond here. He starts the piece saying that last night's Q&A was taken over by the fast-talking Luke McGregor, introduced as a comedian and an economist. And I'm sorry to report that he did seem to think that you gave a garbled economic analysis, but he... I think that's mm. pretty normal, I suppose, isn't it, if, if MMT's brought up and not everyone's on board? Um, mm. Because it's, it's such a sort of fundamental shift in the way we think. And also it doesn't really make sense in terms of our own lives, in terms of how we think of money. It, it took me a long time to sort of come around to understanding that idea of, you know, money that just comes out of nowhere, even though that's sort of what happens and that's what's happening right now. It, um, you know, because there's nothing in our lives that can relate to it. Yeah, It's not intuitive. And then, of course, the intuitive line is spun so often about the uh, government being like a household. Yeah. So then he goes on to say that the baying mob, <laughs> the baying mob, which was the audience, just loved McGregor's leftist rants on economics. I always find it weird when they say leftist because it's, it's not really a left or right theory. It's, it's. I mean, you could use it to put put forward right wing policies, and uh, you know, I guess the definition of what's left and what's right depends on the person. But you know, MMT is not saying that uh, you know you. There's, for me, it's just a system of it's just explaining how our financial system works. Um, you could use it. You could, you know, you could use it to um, fund a um, a body that um, its entire job is um, destroying unions, for example. Like their whole job is just to like you. You don't have to like MMT is just a way of explaining how the financial system works. It's not. It's not. It's not in favor of, to me at least, um, a certain policy framework it's just an explanation of exactly how our fiscal policy works right now it's sort of telling you how the car engine works without telling you where to drive that's 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 a much better way of explaining what i was trying to say yes (laughs) speaking of the left wing i have to read one more thing out of jared's piece here now this is where he thinks he's going to take you down (laughs) all right I'll brace myself. (laughs) He's going to take you down on the old inflation question. So, McGregor declared that debt at any level is not a problem and there is no connection between inflation and printing money. Apparently, Comrade McGregor is under the impression that... (laughs) (laughs) Wear it with pride, Luke. Wear it with pride. (laughs) Apparently, Comrade McGregor is under the impression that the Weimar Republic inflation is a fashionable bar in central Germany. So, of course, whenever we hear Weimar raise its ugly head, we know that they're going back to the old, the printing money will cause inflation. I mean, I've said it before, but I do think the simplest explanation is just that if you print a bunch of money and then you just burn that money, you're not going to cause inflation. You know, that that money has to be spent and it has to be spent to a level that... um, 
supply cannot match it and then those that um, are supplying the goods that you're trying to buy make a conscious decision to increase their prices um, as opposed to just increasing production um, and to me that just feels like a that's not that's not high concept thinking that's just how things work I don't understand how anyone could think any other way um, because um, and and I, just to go back to just to repeat myself, you know, because you can print money and then set it on fire. It doesn't <laughs> printing money in and of itself does not cause inflation. And if you look at those countries where you know they have had runaway inflation, it's it's in, in every instance. It's always been because supply's been overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and printing money in and of itself didn't cause it. The the inability of supply to match it caused it. Mm-hmm. In fact, we often think that the causality goes the other way. Was the lack of supply caused the printing of money, not the printing of money caused the lack of supply? Exactly. And, uh, yeah, it's it, people sort of, you know, argue these points like they're barracking for a football team. Um, <laughs> we give him the benefit of the doubt. I think this is what often happens with people is that they confuse printing money with spending money. And the government never just prints money. It spends money, which is a whole different thing because it's then connecting the amount of money that it's creating with a, a particular resource. So it's looked at the resource and said, this is where we need to spend the money. So it's not just throwing money into the economy without a resource goal. Uh, you know, depending on where and how it spends it um, will depend on whether, you know, we see inflation. Um but it's just these sort of fundamental economic principles that I learned when I was at uni that haven't had to be rocked at all as I learned more about MMT. Um, if anything, I just sort of understood them at a slightly, at least I feel like I understand them at a deeper level now. Um, mm. But yeah, it's the same. It's always the same criticisms of MMT as if no one in the MMT circle has thought of this before. <laughs> it's, I find it really interesting. Yeah. Especially from a conservative um, standpoint, because I, I would have thought they would have been for it, because it could help them justify, you know, their their spending. Um, well, they just did. They've just done exactly that. They've justified the the, the billions oh, they've yeah. spent um, uh, using what MMT says a good use of, of public money, but they won't admit that they've done it. Yeah, especially when especially spending money on a on a you know a gas power plant that the, the private sector said wasn't feasible, and so you know if they had an MMT outlook, they'd be like, "This is fine." Even someone like Bronwyn Bishop, who took a helicopter to Geelong, <laughs> can say, "Well, it's not it's not taxpayer money, is it?" You know, <laughs> so she could. <laughs> Defend herself. I tell you, yeah. what, I've relaxed about the whole submarine thing. <laughs> like, oh, well, they just swap dollars for submarines. Like, it, you can argue that it's it's a waste of public resources, or um, it's a you know, it's a it's a it's a bad direction to go. But you you know, it's not it, it, that that sort of smoking gun of um, unfortunately, which is you know, can be quite a handy one when you're arguing a point. Is you know, you're wasting taxpayer money. Is kind of. Mm-hmm. You know that's gone, um, and that sort of. Ma- but that to me makes for a more interesting debate because then we start talking about okay, well let's let's debate the matter of the policy, right? And how else we could be spending it as opposed to just sort of you know using that sort of blanket statement of oh it's taxpayer money. You're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back, a show all about the economics and experience of unemployment and underemployment here on 3CR Community Radio. I've got to say, when you understand that tax doesn't fund government spending, that it serves another purpose, uh, I, I've relaxed my entirely my my opinion on on uh, tax cuts for the rich. I look at it differently now. I sort of go, well, 
what's going to be caused by taxing the rich less. It's not so much about who's going to pay for government spending. It's about what inflationary pressures is this going to have? How is that going to affect the, the macroeconomic situation? So I guess it's a redistribution of wealth. Yeah, we can always find really good reasons to tax to tax the wealthy. And, and at least from what I've seen uh, in studies I've looked at, um, if you increase the income of someone who's already earning a high income, that they don't necessarily spend that much more. Whereas if you increase the income of someone with a low income, obviously, you know, and that makes, you know... Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was... It certainly made me care less that um, you know certain rich people are paying not a lot of tax. It still makes me irritated that I pay a lot of tax um, <laughs> compared to someone who earns you know billions. But um, yeah, I don't from a, I don't worry about it from a government spending point of view. Do you want to hear another one of my theories, Anne? I have to apologise in advance now, Luke. <laughs> I've got I've got these theories, Luke. You need, you, a, you need a little theme song that goes along with them, or something. A little a little uh, comes in. <laughs> I do. I, the other one that I've got is that, given that we understand what tax is for, I think the tax-free threshold should be raised to seventy five thousand dollars. That anybody who's earning seventy five thousand dollars is probably just making ends meet, um, and that they have no excess income. They're going to be paying tax via GST and other stuff. But um, So that's my theory, is the $75,000 tax-free yeah, I threshold. Do, I do wonder if the reason that um, they're so careful with taxation at lower levels is because if, if, if hypothetically, if, if, it's, if, if it's true that lower income level earners have the most impact on demand when their income changes, I wonder if part of the reason they are taxed like they are is to for the government to have a much... Um, more impactful lever on the economy if taxation is raised. I wonder if that's why, mm. like, the GST in a way is a very direct government lever that they have to raise and increase demand. Obviously, it's sort of stayed exactly where it is. But, you know, you'd think that if they really wanted to have full control on the economy, they could just raise and lower GST. Is, um, like, you know, during COVID, for example, they could have just said, all right, we're going we're gonna to lower GST by 5% or we're going to eliminate it. And then bring it back later as the economy starts to heat up. It's, um, I, I think it's just that taxes just such a, it's you know it's poison for a for a um election campaign, right? So it's not really one of the levers that the government wants to pull. I think we just started the Kevin for for Prime Minister campaign there with his raising the tax threshold. You slipped <laughs> a policy in there, Kevin. <laughs> well, mate, I'll, I'll, I'll vote for you. I, I actually ran ran for um uh, ran in the last election as a Senate candidate with that policy and. Uh, we didn't do any good, so there you go. It's a it's 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 a scary prospect. In the same way, if you, if someone you know if someone said uh, we're just gonna, we're going to get rid of the GST, it's it's silly. We don't need it. We're going to get rid of it. Um, yeah, it's just so scary. Even for even though that would benefit people, it's it's just like oh that that must be disastrous for the economy. They would have done it already. You know, um, mm-hmm. when I try and talk about it, I always try and talk about it just in terms of the sort of economic fundamentals of what happens what um i try not to get into too much into the arguing about a policy um because i uh I, i'm more interested in in just sort of the what 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 are the what are the impacts of a, of a policy or or the what what are the impacts of mmt because that's kind of what i want people in the larger community to understand i guess is that this is not a um this is not linked to a political party or a political ideology. This is, um, even though you know a lot of people who believe in MMT are progressive, I suppose. Um, um, it's not in and of itself. A... That sounds like your economics training coming out there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, I have my opinions on what our policy should be, but I don't. Um, 
You've been saying how agnostic MMT is. You're in direct alignment with Bill Mitchell, who says exactly the same thing about the MMT lens. If you understand that that government has a capacity to spend, they could spend it on submachine guns and and a, and a security force, or they could spend it on public housing, which is probably why it attracts uh, so many progressives. Yeah, and, I mean, they could spend it on censoring the internet. You know, it's yeah. it's just um, it's 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 um, it's why it's why I get frustrated when people says, oh. It's progressive ideology. I'm like, it's, it's really not. <laughs> yeah, or as you uh, pointed out in your Lucanomics, they could spend it on a gold statue of Scott Morrison in every town. Yeah. <laughs> they could, and it's you know it would it would you know it would employ people. And so, um... Where the ideology says, oh, we have to constrain our spending, therefore we can't spend on aged care. You know, and and that's that's where it gets damaging. Yeah, exactly. There's you know there's people that could be helped right now um, if we just let go of this idea of debt. You know, there'd be a lot more people we could be helping right now, but we're not. But we're not. Um, we're not using the full power of our of our economy, and that we have sovereignty over our currency. And we're not. You know, we're not using that to the extent we could, which is which is frustrating. You know, that's very nicely put. <laughs> Thanks. And I'm I'm getting older. I want aged care fixed right now. You know, I don't want to be. I don't want to get to aged care when I'm older. And, <laughs> So this, as Paul Ketting would say, uh, um, uh, self-interest. Is oh the, yeah, uh, the... <laughs> selfish. I want to. I want to make sure I'm. Uh, you know, if I if I if I need someone to help me go to the toilet, they're well trained. I, I want. Um, you know, I... <laughs> and they need to start training now because they're getting yeah, closer. Quick. Well, this might explain um, what's motivating you, Luke, to connect with the group that Kevin and I are members of, uh, Modern Money Australia. And I've heard on the wire that you might be presenting something for that group. 7pm, Thursday the 8th of July. Uh, yeah, I'm doing a, a webinar with them and uh, Bill Mitchell will be there too, um, which is great because um, where I all start to um, stumble, or I, I can't remember what the guy in the Australian said, but um, talk too fast, uh, Bill can step in and um, <laughs> explain things much more succinctly and accurately. Um, It'll be a great combo. But uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward. I'm really looking forward to it. Um, uh, I, I tend to get starstruck by people like Bill, as opposed to I don't know if I go to the Logies and see <laughs> Ray Martin. Mind you, I do get starstruck by Ray Martin as well. But um, I'd, I'd read. I'd read so much of Bill's work um, that when I actually got him on the phone, I was all, I was nervous, I was sweating, and I was I went for a walk to try and sort of keep, keep myself um, moving so I didn't get too nervous. What What have you read? When I was doing the piece for the uh, weekly, I was um, you know I'd sort of I'd been diving deep into his blog, and then I started watching YouTube videos where I was interviewed with him. So I I felt uh. like I'd um, I felt like I knew him before I actually got to talk to him. So that, then, that, then you know, having to having digested so much of his content, and then all of a sudden talking to him on the mobile, I was I was nervous. So, so uh, that must be kind of nice that as a, as you are a celebrity because everybody knows who you are. But you're speaking to Bill as if he's a celebrity. So I find that interesting. I think I've still got uncles and aunties that don't aren't aware I'm on TV. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, it, one one thing I've I've liked about sort of pursuing comedies that I can you know call up someone like Bill out of the blue and talk to him. Um, it's it's nice being able to sort of... I, I love that it enables me to connect with people I wouldn't otherwise connect with. You know, it's the same with you, you both, you know, getting to do this show. It's... Um, mm-hmm. These are things that have opened up to me that I, I might not have had if I if I hadn't done comedy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, we're glad you did. Yeah, so if people want to catch more of Luke and um, of Bill, uh, they can go to the Modern Money Australia Facebook page. So just type in Modern Money Australia on Facebook and you will find the events listed in there. That's been great actually hearing from a certified economist. <laughs> <laughs> so um, really appreciate you coming onto the show. 
Um, thanks for having me. The degree is hanging at my parents' house in Hobart. If anyone wants to, if no one believes me, wants proof. Um, you need to get Bill to uh, to put a um, a stamp on it to update that uh, that qualification. Uh, I'll, get, I'll get him to sign it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like, a, like an album cover. Then it will mean something. That yeah. will be good. Thanks very much for coming on the show. Luke. Thanks for having me, guys. Really appreciate it. There are many ways that you can keep up to date with 3CR news, events, and programs. The 3CR website is a great spot to catch all your shows via audio on demand or scroll through our range of podcasts. It's also where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter, buy yourself a new t-shirt or check out archival audio from past broadcasts. Of course, we're also on Twitter at 3CR and Instagram at 3CR Melbourne. But don't forget our mighty AM band. Catch us anytime on 855am. Keep in touch. 3cr.org.au You're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back here on 3CR Community Radio. I'm very pleased to be joined by Ricardo Welters, who is an Associate Professor in Economics up there in Queensland at James Cook University at their College of Business, Law and Governance. So welcome to the show, Ricardo. Well, thank you for having me, Anne. One of the things that stood out for me when I was looking at your bio is that you were once Deputy Director of the Centre for Employment and Equity at the University of Newcastle. Of course, we follow the work of Professor Bill Mitchell on this show, who leads that centre. So I'm Dutch. I'm, I'm a Dutch citizen. I went to Australia in 2005 and I went to the Centre of Full Employment and Equity and stayed there for two and a half years and had a lovely time at the centre. It's a, it's a great place to be. Great people. Though, right? Someone like uh, Bill Mitchell, that's a great person. Then you can talk about his academic prowess, uh, which he has as well. But uh, in the first place, great person. Uh, also the other staff that worked there in those days. Uh, for me, it was a great introduction to Australia. Wonderful. There you've immediately described how employment offers more things than just a paycheck. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Because, I mean, when I, when I went to, uh, to Australia, I came on my own, so I didn't know anyone. So it was good for me to be, uh, to be welcomed in a, in a nice environment. Now, one of the other things I noticed in your bio is that you actually admit to teaching modern monetary theory, or MMT, which is the economic school of thought that we look at the economy in this show. Uh, I haven't taught it yet. I am going to teach it um, for the first time somewhere in uh, August. Oh, how exciting. And what course is that going to be a part of? So we have a Bachelor of Commerce at, uh, at James Cook. Mm-hmm. And within the Bachelor of Commerce, you can do a major in economics. And this is a compulsory subject within that major. You can actually, in Australia, now go and study modern monetary theory. So that is absolutely wonderful to hear. So mutual obligations are in the media at the moment. And I think that part of the reason for that is that... The Morrison government has recently produced this amendment to the Social Security Act, uh, which is called Streamlined Participation Requirements and Other Measures, which gives them a nice broad canvas to work on. And in fact, they only gave uh, the rest of Parliament two weeks to plough through thousands of pages and figure out what they're up to. (laughs) And Minister Alan Tudge, when he was talking to this amendment to the legislation which governs the unemployment benefits, 
he described that it supports the intent of the targeted compliance framework to encourage job seekers to comply with their mutual obligation requirements. Now, I love the language that comes in this area. It's very Orwellian, these targeted compliance framework. So if any of our listeners are under any illusion that it's about providing employment services and it's not just a compliance system, that targeted compliance framework might give you a clue. And then the other thing that's been in the media is actually your work, Ricardo. You have done some research with, is that Rud Gerards? Rud Gerards, yes. So the two of you have produced a paper and in fact you also wrote an article that was in the conversation recently under the title New Finding Job Seekers Subject to Obligations Take Longer, Longer to Find Work. And I also loved the title of the paper which was Does Eliminating Benefit Eligibility Requirements Improve Unemployed Job Search and Labour Market Outcomes? Is that a bit of a rhetorical question? (laughs) Well, it it might be a rhetorical question, but it's a question that we need to answer. The the paper is really a microeconomic paper. So it's looking at how mutual obligations impact on the unemployed person themselves. And we know from MMT that unemployment is is a macroeconomic phenomenon. Right. So this paper is not going to provide any insights into how we resolve unemployment. What the paper does is it is just following the orthodoxy and the orthodoxy believes that unemployment, at least in part, is a microeconomic phenomenon in the sense that the person who is unemployed is to blame for being unemployed. So you're taking them at face value as your starting point. That's the starting point. So let's follow their argument. Let's, you know, we know it's not true, but let's follow their argument for a moment. Mm -hmm. We have to keep in mind this orthodox point saying, okay, the unemployed is at fault here for being unemployed. So if you believe that argument, if you follow that argument, you could say, oh, well, if a person then is unemployed, that person must have a mutual obligation to Australian society to do something in return for the help that they get from the service provider to find the job or in return for the benefits that they get. Now, that mutual obligation that could be you have to uh, attend appointments with the employment service provider or you have to do a minimum number of job applications per month or you have to work for the doll. Those are the three main uh, mutual obligations that the government imposes on the unemployed. I sort of think that with these mutual obligations, they sound so benign on the surface. It seems perfectly reasonable to ask someone who is unemployed to look for work and to go to job interviews and to accept job offers and to do any kind of training that might improve their prospects. But I have to say, as someone who's been subjected to this regime, that it really is the gateway to institutionalised abuse, I think. The term mutual obligations, I think, is actually very appropriate. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But if you look at the MMT perspective, you know that it's the government that chooses how many people are unemployed in a country at a given time. Mm. So if the government decides to put a certain group of people through the misery of unemployment, then it's the government that has the mutual obligation to look after those people. So the term mutual obligation is actually correct, (laughs) but the way it is used in this country is the other way around because, okay, the government decides 
how many people are unemployed. And then we're going to say that we put the mutual obligation on those poor people that they should do something in return for something the government has put upon them. <laughs> Essentially, I like the term mutual obligation, uh -huh. but it's the government that has the mutual obligation to look after the people that they put through the misery of unemployment. So true. I like that reframing of the whole issue. Yep. So the starting point of any labor market policy is that it should help the unemployed back to work more quickly. So any instrument that you introduce as a government should have the aim of bringing the unemployed to work more quickly. So we put this to the test and said, okay, do mutual obligations actually help the unemployed to get back to work more quickly? And the answer is no, they don't. Shock horror. <laughs> <laughs> you wanna you wanna research that well. So what we did is we we followed about five thousand unemployed for for over a year. Wow. And some of them have mutual obligations and some don't. Mm -hmm. And then we look to compare a person who has a mutual obligation and we compare that to the labor market outcomes of a person who doesn't have one. And we control for all kinds of other differences that might be between the two groups. We note that the ones who have a mutual obligation take longer, not shorter, now take longer to find the job. Mm. They are less time in employment in the year that we follow them. And if they find the job, it is of lower quality in terms of wages and in terms of hours than someone without that mutual obligation. So it really looks like the mutual obligation is not helping the unemployed to find the job. It's just the reverse. It's actually blocking them of finding them a job. So if you're finding that mutual obligations are effectively an obstacle to finding suitable work and finding well-paid work, and in fact, more likely to result in poorly paid work, I'm just wondering, isn't this probably exactly what corporate employers would want? And at some level, you could say that mutual obligations are working really well. Um, look, there might be there might be other arguments uh, why we have this kind of system. I'm not expecting that tomorrow the Morrison government will will abolish mutual obligations. It's what they should be doing, but I don't think they will. So there will be other reasons why they have this system. Mm, reasons that go beyond helping people find employment. <laughs> That's right. But that was not your area. That was not my research question. That's right. And your findings were consistent with some cognitive theories. Could you run us through what those are? So we did this analysis. We found that mutual obligations don't do what, what they're officially supposed to do. Let's put it that way. So we started to theorize and say, okay, is there any, are there any theories that might explain why we found what we found? And there are various theories, some are cognitive theories, some psychological theories. One of the theories that we used was self-determination theory. Mm -hmm. Self-determination theory says that there's a difference between intrinsic motivation to do something and external motivation to do something. External motivation means someone else tells you to do something, like in the case of mutual obligations where the service provider might tell you to, to look for a job. And self-determination theory tells you that Intrinsic motivation is more successful than extrinsic motivation. So if you put pressure on an unemployed person to do this, do that, you will turn their motivation more external and that reduces success rate. Mm. That's one theory. I'm just wondering, does that include the effects of threat and punishment? 
because, of course, it's not just that the job provider is saying, we suggest you go and do this. They're also saying, we suggest you go and do this at the threat of losing your only source of income. <laughs> yep, that's also an extrinsic motivation. If you are going to look for a job because there is a threat that you lose your livelihood, essentially, mm. that is very much an extrinsic motivator. Second theory that we looked at is scarcity theory. Scarcity theory says that decision-making takes place in two separate parts of your brain. One part of your brain, you make quick decisions. And then in the other part of your brain, you make elaborate decisions. You take more time, they're more deliberate decision-making. When you're looking for a job and you're looking for the right job, it's more of a deliberate decision. It's not something that you do haphazardly. Mm. And what scarcity theory says is that if you put stress on a person, like a threat of a financial penalty, you know, everything that mutual obligations does to you. When you put stress on a person, the person doesn't have access anymore to that second part of the brain where they can make deliberate and careful decisions. Mm-hmm. So the only thing that's left is that quick uh, decision making. Yeah, so you might find a job, but it's not the right one for you. Scarcity theory will tell you that you'll get worse outcomes, worse decisions. And so that's another way to explain why we find what we found. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. You know, I found it interesting also that your work talked about benefit eligibility requirements, which in Australia are called mutual obligations. And that just suggested to me that that's an international language, that it's not just Australians who are subjected to this abuse. That's right. So we use that term because the paper is published in in an international journal. And this is the term that's often used in the international literature. Many countries have these kind of systems and they give it their own names. So yes, it, it does happen in more countries. I haven't really seen it to the extent that it is used in Australia. Oh, really? We're a world leader, are we? (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. This country is a world leader in something. Yes, that's right. But similar systems are used in developed countries, which is not a surprise because neoliberalism is not something that only happens in Australia. That happens worldwide. So what you can see is that from the 90s onward, uh, you can see the social security systems develop in this way where you get these eligibility requirements. We can can share the pain. Um, (laughs) So... (laughs) So you said that, as far as you know, that you're the first to assess the effects of these mutual obligations. What is it that you're contributing that's unique? So there has been research in this area before, but we're the first ones to actually look at a group of uh, labor market behavior aspects. So we look at job search intensities, how many hours do people spend in work, how long does it take them to find the job, how many months are they in an employment because it's one thing to find a job but you might lose it the next month Mm -hmm. and then we also look at the type of jobs that they might find in terms of uh, hourly wages and we look at hours that they work so we're not the first one to look into this problem but i do think we're the first one who look comprehensively at this problem so you also said that even if you come to the conclusion that removing mutual obligations is the way to go that's not in and of itself, enough to help unemployed Australians into good jobs. So I'm just wondering what you might be pointing to there. What I'm pointing there is, and this is the modern monetary theory 
perspective in that is that unemployment is a macroeconomic phenomenon. Yeah, it's the government's choice how many people are unemployed in a country at a given point in time. So the paper that we're looking at here that we've been talking about is a microeconomic paper. So it is not going to resolve the problems that we have in terms of finding jobs for people. For that, we just need the government to spend more fiscal stimulus. That's what we need. But I had a look at the latest job figures. And at the moment, the latest data is in April 2021. And we have an unemployment rate of 5.5%, which equates to 756,000 people unemployed. Then you have underemployment. So underemployment is the people who have a job but don't have enough hours. And they want to work more hours but can't find those hours. Mm. That is 7.8%, which is a million people. Mm. So we have 756,000 people who don't have a job at all. And then we have another million people in this country who would like to more hours. So that's about what? 1.8 million. Mm -hmm. We have at the moment... 289,000 vacancies. Can you do the math of the uh, ratio there? <laughs> I can do that. I can do the math. That that tells you that if you only look at the unemployed people, so forget about the underemployed for the moment, that for every vacancy, we have two and a half people unemployed. Mm. So if mutual obligations, if the goal is there that, okay, we have to make sure that the unemployed search harder for work, well, we can do that. You can search harder for work, mm -hmm. but you can't be successful at finding work that doesn't exist, right? Mm. So how could we, how is it possible that we put people through the test of searching for work that doesn't exist and then blame them for not finding work that doesn't exist? Right. So if you want to resolve this problem, that is your problem. The problem is that there's not enough work for the people that want to work. That's the problem, which is a macroeconomic phenomenon. Uh, so what we then need is obviously a job guarantee. That's what we need. Mm -hmm. um, once we've got a job guarantee, then there is work for everyone who wants to work and we can resolve this problem. It's just so great to hear an academic shore up what some of the activists are saying. It's not rocket science, <laughs> right? It's not rocket science. <laughs> you just look at the number of people who are unemployed and you look at the vacancies. Well, they're not the same. So there's a problem. Right, right. So how is whipping someone going to help them find the work? That doesn't exist. Right. I'm James Juniper. I'm an economist at the University of Newcastle. And you're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back on Radio 3 CR. So I actually came across part of the ALP, the Labor Party's national platform, mm -hmm. in which they are talking now about a federal jobs program. And it talked about the program matching job seekers with jobs. So it did not talk about guaranteeing jobs and it did not talk about that it would be the federal government as the currency issuer who would supply the jobs. So this idea of matching job seekers with jobs, I just felt like it could be the gateway to increasing this pressure for people to take on unsuitable work. And I was just wondering if you had an opinion about that. Yeah, look, I think if the ALP is serious about a job guarantee, it also has to be serious about MMT because those two things are not separate. Mm -hmm. they, they go together. And as long as there is no acceptance of MMT, there will always be discussions about, oh, how are we going to pay for this? Mm -hmm. I'm not sure about what the ALP wants there. 
they might also say, okay, we need to find jobs that, that match the workers. Does that also mean that if I don't have a job in town, so I have to move to Melbourne if mm. there's a job there? Is that what it means? Mm. I guess that's the beauty of the job guarantee. We just create the jobs where the people are. They don't need to uproot. They don't need to destroy their social lives. Mm-hmm. It's great if they're talking about it, but let's look for some more detail on what that really means. What's also in the media at the moment, we were told about the robo-debt settlement, the settlement the government made for accusing, without any grounds, uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of welfare recipients, including the unemployed, for owing a debt back to Centrelink for falsely claiming benefits. And they've settled for millions of dollars. And, of course, nobody was found accountable for destroying the lives of thousands of people. Thousands of your fellow Australians were highly stressed to the point of, some people are saying, suicide. So I'm just wondering if you have a comment on that settlement. I guess I don't have a a comment on the settlement, but I I do want to come back to a point you made earlier. You asked me, Mm -hmm. um, mutual obligations, is that an Australian thing or is that is that something more broadly? And and because I'm Dutch, I still follow Dutch news. And so you've got this robo-debt scandal in Australia and, and everyone in Australia thinks, oh, this is something that happens in Australia, mm-hmm. in Australia only. But it's not true. Oh. Something very similar happened in the Netherlands. It was about childcare subsidies. And people in the Netherlands, parents were chased down by the government because they had used too much childcare allowance. And that put people through misery and, uh, you know, uh, suicide, all those things, all the things that we're talking about at RoboDebt. Mm. It's a different thing. So RoboDebt is the unemployed, this childcare subsidy, that's parents. So it's a different story, but it's the same. It's the same dynamic. People who get allowances, we're not assuming they do the right thing. No, no, no. We're going to follow them and try and be as harsh as we can. Mm. This happens in Australia. It happens in the Netherlands. I'm sure it happens in other places as well. Interesting. Interesting that there is an international um, approach. Hmm. Well, thank you so much for your time and all the best with your ongoing work. My pleasure. Okay, Ed, that was a great show. Great to have Luke on the show. He um, He's a beauty. I, I really like Luke. There's something very authentic about him. Very authentic, and you've got another chance to hear more from Luke about modern monetary theory and maybe even throw a question his way because Luke is generously participating in a webinar hosted by Modern Money Australia, and he and Bill Mitchell, founding intellectual of modern monetary theory, will be in conversation. It's online, it's free, so put Thursday, July the 8th into your calendars and you can find more details at the Facebook page of Modern Money Australia, and you'll be able to sign up for that webinar. And Ricardo, um, excellent as well. Wonderful. There's, there's no faulting that. But uh, look, we're running out of time. We've got to make room for Mafalda. So see you in a couple of weeks' time, eh? See you, Kevin. Bye. You've been listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Join us the second and fourth Friday of each and every month as part of The Sewer Show on 3CR. Listen to this show as a podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. We thank all our guests, and I thank you, Anne. And I thank you, Kevin. Oh, no, the pleasure was all mine. Oh, no, Kevin, the pleasure was all mine.
You mean all the pleasure was yours? Kevin, I think I took all the pleasure on this one. <laughs> well, if you took all the pleasure, that means I, there's no pleasure for me at all. And I, oh. I quite enjoyed myself. So if you got all the pleasure, then what, I had no, I had no pleasure? I think we should share the pleasure. <laughs> well, we're going to have to share the pleasure. Because... Did you enjoy listening to this podcast? 3CR is a community radio station, and you, the listener, are part of that community. Right now, it's our Radiothon, and we need you to pitch in with a few dollars to keep the station going. We can't do it without you. It's easy. Head to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. Your donation really matters. Help support community-powered podcasts for another year.